Hello, welcome to A Youthful Take, Season 2, Episode 6. Today, Jack and I have a very special interview. It's a long one, so we're going to cut out the game show section and the opening section. We're just going to get right into that. And a quick disclaimer beforehand, um, some controversial uh, takes are shared by our guest. So we just want to say we do not condone or condemn what is being said. This is for pure educational purposes. Um, We are a platform for every perspective, so this is just one perspective that's being shared, but we just want to make it clear that it's for educational purposes, and we do not condone or condemn anything that's said. We are just a platform. Uh, With that being said, enjoy the interview. It's a great one. Welcome back. This is season two, episode six, six. interview of Youthful wow. Take. Jack, today we have the honor of being here with Sam Harris. Sam is many things, but most notably a philosopher, New York Times bestselling author, neuroscientist, and podcast host. Wow. Sam is a creator of the Making Sense podcast and the Waking Up Mindfulness app. Um, as for numbers, the Making Sense, Making Sense podcast has over half a million monthly listeners and Sam has over 1 million followers across all social media platforms. Just plug your numbers there. And overall, Sam is one of the world's premier thinkers. Uh, Sam, thank you for doing this with us. Oh, good. Gentlemen, it's great to be here. <laughs> so, uh, although I, I, I deleted my Twitter account, so do I have, I don't know, how many I followers? Ch- I, I, so you have like s- over 600,000 on YouTube. Wow. Okay, and so over, those are comp- like company accounts. Yeah, yeah over 300,000 yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. So wow. Otherwise, my... I, I now ignore social media, which yeah. is a massive change in the quality of my life. Yeah. All right, Sam. All right, first so question. for format, we're going to split this up into the three main sections. We're going to talk a lot about religion, AI, and then do more politics. general politics section. And then we'll conclude with some more lighthearted questions. Right. So let's begin. This is a little not within the sections, but uh, before we get into religion, uh, when did you get your start in the world of thinking? And when did you first notice an interest in, like, philosophy and, I guess, intellectual life? Well, I, I took a very unconventional course through academia. So I, I, this is, I'm not an example for either of you. I'm, a, I'm more of a cautionary tale. I dropped out of school after my sophomore year and took 11 years off, right? And, and in that time in the wilderness, I spent a lot of time reading and writing. So I was, I, it, was not, it was not wasted with respect to what I wound up later doing. I also spent a lot of time learning meditation and I was spent time in India and Nepal. And so I was kind of giving myself an esoteric education, but I sort of dropped out off the map for a decade and then went back to school and finished in philosophy because it allowed me to just keep reading and writing what I, what I was interested in at that point, uh, which was the like moral philosophy and, and the philosophy of mind. It just, what is consciousness and how does it relate to what we could discover about brains and, um, and uh, just the, the physics of things. So I, um, I eventually decided I had to go back to school and, and get a graduate degree to, to, to do what I wanted to do. And then that's when I pivoted to neuroscience. And so then I did a PhD in, in neuroscience. Um, but it, it's, I, I kind of did everything backwards. I mean, most people discover esoteric things like meditation after they already you know, finish school and, and are on track. And so I kind of, I, I, my interest in science came after I spent 
you know, years practicing meditation on silent retreats and going to India, and it was it was that that it just it, questions about the nature of consciousness and what it is, and, and it, what, how is it that we experience our experience. That led me in a kind of belated way to just become interested in, in the sciences of mind. So that's so. So it wasn't it was to answer your question. I didn't I didn't actually begin publishing anything until. I was in graduate school. I, I guess I was 34 when my, um, let me think. Yeah, September 11th. So it was, I, I started writing my first book, The End of Faith, right after September 11th, 2001. So I was just two years into, into graduate school doing my neuro, neuroscience research. And as chance would have it, I was doing research on belief. Uh, and religious belief was a subset of what I was interested in there. So I, I, um, you know, I had spent essentially a decade giving myself a um, a fairly unconventional education on religion, East and West, and spiritual experience, and, and, and as I was pretty connected to what uh, tend to be mo you know, most people's religious concerns, um, and I was studying belief and, and, and religious belief in particular at the level of the brain, and then people started flying planes into our buildings for explicitly religious reasons, and you know, our, our whole culture pitched into a um, really a state of denial about those motivations for the most part. And so that that's when I wrote my first book, The End of Faith, mm -hmm. that really spells out the the conflict as I as I see it between religion and science and and faith and reason. Where did you go to school? Um, undergraduate, I went to Stanford, and then I went to UCLA for graduate school. And it was it was relevant that that I went to Stanford because I think Stanford is one of the only schools where you you can leave for years and you're never expelled, right? You, you never you can never effectively drop out. Yeah, I don't I don't know if they've changed that policy, but they call this stopping out. And literally, you know, you can stop out for thirty years and then you just show up and your name's still on the computer and they're they're ready for you. So I mean, that was it seems like a good policy to me, but it would have been consequential, I think, for me at that point to have th had to think about getting back into school as an undergraduate who had been AWOL for a decade. Cool. Okay, so uh, to get more into the religious stuff, you are known as, you had you had a very famous video on YouTube that you made a book, right? The Four Horsemen of Atheism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you are known as one of the Four Horsemen. Uh, how did you become one of the Four Horsemen, and can you explain what new atheism is? So new atheism was really a publishing phenomenon more than anything else. I mean, I, I wrote my book, The End of Faith, which was my first book, and, and it was really a an attack on organized religion, among other things. Uh, and then in quick succession, three other authors wrote similar books. So, so Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, I think, the next year. Dan Dennett wrote Breaking the Spell, and uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote God is Not Great. Uh, and then, so the four of us began to be treated like a, a kind of four-headed atheist, uh, as though we agreed about everything, which was not, in fact, the case. But we, we certainly agreed about a lot and, and, and almost everything relevant to the discussion about the conflict between religion and, and the rest of what we call you know, reason and common sense and evidence and logic. And um, So the thing I didn't share with those guys is, it made the, you know, I had these these um, interests in things like meditation and, you know, 
you know, psychedelic experience and just what, what is spiritual experience and, and, you know, what, how is it, what is it that is at the bottom of all of these religions that people really care about? And so I, I was connected to that in a way that they, they weren't. But other than that, we saw the danger of religious dogmatism in the same way. Yeah. Uh, right. Next question. You are also well known for criticizing. Well, you know, we mentioned this, but yeah. Religious fundamentalism, right? Especially Islamic extremism. And you kind of went viral a couple years back for an argument you had with Ben Affleck on this topic. Yeah. It's an awesome video. If anyone's listening and they haven't seen it, it's pretty cool. It's you and Bill Maher just totally destroying Ben Affleck. Well, that's one way to see it. <laughs> half the world apparently saw it the other way. Half the world saw him yeah. unmask our, our Islamophobia. <laughs> uh, so I guess my question is kind of two parts. One, why is Affleck wrong? And two, do you ever get nervous or fearful when challenging major religions, given the violence associated with religious extremism? That is a long answer to this question. I don't know how much time you got, but I think it's important to be kind of complete here because this is a totally inflammatory topic, and I don't want to get you guys in trouble with my heresy. Um, so here's, here's my basic view. That we're misled in thinking about the problems of religion because we have the single word religion as though that named a unified class of things, right? You know, preoccupations and ideologies and tribal commitments. But religion is, is kind of a word like sports, right? It's, it's a, like a suitcase term that names a very diverse class of things. And so if I just said to you, you know, sports are dangerous, well, you'd say what? Like, you know, bowling, is bowling dangerous? Is badminton dangerous? Is, you know, is um, volleyball dangerous? It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't give you the distinctions you need to to make to to um, understand what's going on in various sports and to the kinds of you know fitness you need, the kinds of injuries you're likely to get, whether there's violence associated with it. So there's certain sports like, you know, MMA or tie boxing that are intrinsically violent, right? And you're you're going to get injured, and you're 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 trying to injure others. Really, you're actually, you're actually trying to provoke a neurological injury in someone when you when you knock them out. But of course, many other sports are not like that. You know, it's got so so, so you're just you can't talk about sports in general, right? And yet, people insist that all of our, our religions at bottom teach the same thing. All of their commitments are to love and peace and tranquility and brotherhood, and and it's it's um it's only a distortion of the faith that would ever get you something like violence or or you know ba basic basic. Um, tribal insanity. And that's just not true. I mean, they're just, they're, there's really different, important differences between our religions. Um, so there's a religion like Jainism, which really is a religion of nonviolence. You know, Gandhi got his, his, his nonviolence from the Jains. His, he was a Hindu, but his mother was a Jain. Um, and really the core precept is you don't kill anything for any reason, right? So the, so the, the more extreme you get as a Jain, the more, the, the less anyone has to worry about you, frankly. I mean, you, you become someone who you're, you're a vegetarian. You're, you're constantly looking at the ground, so you, lest you step on a bug, which is to say you're never going to see Jane suicide bombers, right? Because it's just, it's, it would make no sense to be, to be motivated by Jainism to behave that way. Whereas, conversely, Islam really does have a doctrine of jihad and martyrdom, which presents a... a a unique liability with respect to the kinds of violence we have seen in the world. Um, 
Now, it's not, when I talk about Islam, I really am talking about Islam as the set of ideas and, you know, as found in the Quran and in the biography of Muhammad and in the Hadith literature, which is the, like, almost like the, the Talmud for, for um, Islam. Um, and I'm not talking about the world's 2 billion or 2.2 billion Muslims, right? I mean, like, they're, they're, there's the set of people that all believe whatever they believe to whatever degree. And only a subset of them actually really want to live by the the, the, the strictest interpretation of the faith, uh, as we see in various you know, you know, so-called terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS. Um, and there are many, many millions of Muslims, obviously, who want nothing to do with any of that. And so I'm not – so the, the, the real wire that I got, cro that got crossed with Ben Affleck in that encounter was that he immediately heard what I was saying about Islam and what, what Bill was, was, was echoing about Islam as an attack on two billion Muslims as people. Like, we're, we're bigots. You know, he could even call us racist, which makes no sense because Islam is not a race. I mean, people from, you know, a hundred different countries and every race can be Muslim. Um, you know, we could convert to Islam right now and, you know, that's not a matter of changing our race. So it's, it's not racism, but that's, that's where many people go initially because they, they view – in the in the American context, they view Muslims as a as a beleaguered or potentially beleaguered minority of people, you know, largely brown skinned people who should be viewed as a um, as an identity group that that requires protection, um, and they're not viewing it globally as the, the world's second largest religion, where there are you know twenty two Muslim countries and uh, twenty two to a, a, countries that are officially uh, you know, run under Islamic law and, you know, 50 countries or more that are majority Muslim, right? So it's not, it's it's a much bigger phenomenon than we perceive in the States. And there are millions and millions of people who are quite hardcore in their religious commitments. And it's easy to see why when you read the books and when you hear the sermons and when you when you hear them talk about why they do what they do. So um, again, there are relevant differences between religions, which even most atheists ignore. I mean, most atheists just dispense with religion in one fell swoop. You know, there's no God. There's no reason to believe in God. All these religions are equally mis mistaken, and there's no there's no more to say, right? But there there really is more to say because there's only one religion that has made it dangerous to criticize the faith, right? It's, it's only one, there's only one religion on earth where it's, in fact, dangerous to leave the faith. I mean, if you're born Muslim and then you decide you no longer want to be Muslim because you no longer believe in God or you, now you're a Christian, now you believe, you know, now you want to, to focus on Jesus as your savior, that is dangerous to do, not just in the Middle East, but in, in any devout Muslim community anywhere, even in the West. I mean, I know many ex-Muslims who, grew up in places like Texas, you know, who have really worried about their safety. So that's just intolerable. And I think we need to speak honestly about it. And very few people do. And so that's, that's gotten me in, in hot water with, with people, as you've noticed, but it's, it's, you know, the, the, the real inoculation for that, that, that cuts through all of the, the liberal delusion, and I consider myself a, a very much a liberal on this topic, is to listen to ex-Muslims talk about their experience. Right, because then, then you can't be confused about any of the identity politics. I mean, these are people from, you know, Pakistan or or somewhere in the Muslim world, where their parents were, and they're they're not white guys like me, you know, worrying about Islam. They're people who have 
grown up in it and have the, very are very clear about the reasons why they they see a problem with the faith. Does the same not apply for Christianity's violent history or let's say violent Jews in the West Bank? Is that a different? Yeah, it does. It, it does, but just a different scale. I mean, it, it it applies to Christianity historically a lot, but again, it's it's a different history and. You know, the analogy I would draw is that it, it's almost like in much of the Muslim world, we're having to deal with the Christians of the 14th century. Yeah. I mean, Christ, Christianity went through centuries of collision with modernity and with science and with skepticism and with capitalism and with you know, the rest of culture, where we, we beat the extremism out of Christianity, um, again, over, over centuries. And it's not to say there aren't some very extreme, crazy Christians, uh, there are. Um, and in their case, there's, it's import, there's still important distinctions to make between Christianity and Islam because no matter how extreme you get as a Christian, there, are, there is no doctrine of, of jihad. There is no real doctrine of holy war in the, in the same sense. There's no real doctrine of martyrdom, even though there's a history of, of Christians who have been considered martyrs. There's not a doctrine of whereby you could you could seek martyrdom for yourself in a way that is you know well well subscribed and advocated within the faith, um, and most importantly, there's not an expectation necessarily that Christianity is going to win a conflict with the rest of the world and subsume the whole world. I mean, there's not there's not a triumphal vision. What what the Christians basically expect to lose and lose and lose until Jesus comes back. And rectifies everything, right? So they they, they have a, a an expectation about the day of judgment in the context of a very fallen world, but they're not ex, they're not they don't have a triumphal vision of we're just going to conquer the world for God's sake, and it's and it, history is not going to end until that happens, right? So there's not there's not the same uh, vision of that that you get in Islam, so. There are important differences even among fanatics, right? And there are important differences even even within Islam among different jihadist groups and different strains of fanaticism there. So the, the most extreme version we've ever seen in our lifetime certainly was the Islamic State, you know, I, otherwise known as ISIS. And and that's, you know, even even you, what you see with Hamas now is not as extreme. As extreme as it is, Hamas is not as extreme and as, as theocratic as the Islamic State. So there are gradations even there, and I think it's just important to be honest about all the distinctions. But yes, I mean the 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 ultra orthodox Jews in Israel and, and the and the fanatical settlers in, in the West Bank, I think they're um, they're obviously making any kind of peace process much much harder. And they're, you know I, I think they're they really need to be politically sidelined somehow. It's, it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. And then to repeat Jack's question, do you ever get like nervous when challenging these major religions, like the presence of violence? Well, well I'm, you know, I do have security concerns, and I take them seriously, but I just think it's necessary to speak about these things. So I, I don't do anything that I would consider stupid. I don't make, my, I don't make myself particularly easy to find I get you know I get security whenever I, I I am easy to find whether I have a you know I have a public event I get security you know and, and so I do I do take all that stuff pretty seriously um, you know I put people through medical uh, I put people through meta, metal detectors at um, my events 
Now I didn't used to do that, you know. So it's it's a real thing, but it's not. It would be worse in other societies, which is which is worth it's worth recognizing that and maintaining the freedom we have, insofar as we haven't yet lost it. I mean, the, the truth is, we have lost our First Amendment freedoms with respect to Islam to an impressive degree. I mean, we have because we're, we're practicing self-censorship in a way that is is rarely acknowledged, but it's been going on for as long as you guys have been alive. I mean, I, perhaps you guys remember this Broadway musical, The Book of Mormon, yeah. right? That, you know, doing that for Islam would be unthinkable. There's no one who would stage a play like that, and it just goes without analysis, but everyone knows why. The playwrights and the, the actors would be in fear for their lives, right? And there's only one religion about, about which that's the case, and... Again, I, I consider that intolerable, and I think I think most importantly, moderate Muslims should consider it intolerable. Right? I mean, it's, it's it's the moderate Muslims who have to change this status quo. They have to turn on the on the fanatics in their midst and say, you know, you're not you don't represent us, and we want no part of you. Um, they haven't done that to any degree that is is noticeable. Uh, but in America, we we you know, life is different than it is even in Western Europe, right? I think it would be, my job would be riskier if I lived in London or Paris. Um, and that's that's a bad thing. I mean, that, that that's a condemnation of what has happened to Western Europe, in my view. And I think we just, we need to be honest about that. You know, like when you looked at the, look at the protests that happened after October 7th, immediately, even before Israel did anything in response, the, the character of the protests here, as ugly as some of them were, were, were quite a bit different than what you saw in Western Europe. I mean, Western Europe, you know, London had, you know, three, four hundred thousand people come out, essentially, in support of Hamas. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a different situation, and it's it's worth keeping an eye on, on that problem. All right, we're going to shift to uh, AI talk mm -hmm. here, because you gave an awesome well, TED to worry about. <laughs> More to be worried about, yeah. Uh, you gave an awesome TED Talk in 2016, I believe, on AI. Um, is AI still controllable, controllable, or has it reached the point of no return? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I certainly fear it's reached the point of no return just because, not that we have gotten into the end zone with respect to actually creating what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, um, because we haven't yet. But the we're in an arms race, right? All the companies are competing with one another. All the countries are, you know, all the, you know, the few countries that are that are doing this are, are clearly competing with, with each other. Uh, and an arms race is just not the condition you want to be in to incentivize careful, ethical behavior, right? So... Um, unless we can change the arms rates condition, and I don't really see how we can, I worry that just the incentives are such that we're just we're just going as fast as we can, and people are deploying as early as they, as they can, um, because if they don't, OpenAI or whatever their competitor is going to is going to deploy next week, and so we're just iteratively getting better. So we're building stronger and stronger AI in a way that's not. Um, 
is just not constrained by an overarching concern about doing this safely and making sure we're doing it safely. And, and it just, it's, I, I mean, maybe we'll have a moment where we'll get the heads of all the leading companies together and they'll all agree to, to pull the brake if there's a brake to be pulled. But the problem is what is China then going to do? Right. I mean, that, that's the concern. It's like, we, we, we want to get the most advanced AI, we being the, the West, not just America, before China does, before Russia does, before, you know, North Korea or Iran or anyone else who could, could conceivably do it at some point. Um, so it's a very tricky situation. I don't know. Um, I mean, it, again, fears about, fears about AI really running amok. I mean, just AGI getting out of control and, and destroying the world. They sound crazy, really. Even, even when you think about them in a fairly careful way and can't see how uh, how it becomes implausible. Like the, just what just the the punchline always sounds crazy, right? The idea that our machines could ever truly become so powerful and so autonomous that we can no longer control them. But there are really not that many things you have to assume to put yourself in the position to think that thought and not see how how you can plausibly doubt it, right? And I mean, all you have to assume, and this is something I said in that TED Talk, is is that intelligence is, is substrate independent, which is to say it doesn't have to be in in computers made of meat. And we know that to be true. I mean, all, you know, your, your iPhone and, and your computer and um, your engagements with ChatGPT, I mean, all of that should prove to you that it's, it's possible to build intelligent systems in silico. And then the question is, do we continue making progress? Uh, because, we're, you know, and, and progress is, you know, it doesn't have to be at any particular pace. We just have to keep going. And eventually we're going to have intelligent systems that are more powerful than we are in, in the same way that we have, you know, chess engines that are just better than we are at chess. And there's no, at that point, once they're better, there's no way to say, Okay, we'll just play chess harder, right? Like you're just gonna, you're gonna, you just have to win at the chess game. And so, if you imagine building a true AGI that's not perfectly aligned with our interests, and it is, it is really AGI, which it really is general. It really is like a person, but just much, much smarter and has access to the totality of human knowledge on the internet. And now you're t trying to negotiate with it, right? You know, it really, if, if you think it won't be autonomous, well, then you're not really putting the G in AGI. You're not really thinking of it, it being fully general. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, there are a lot of very smart people trying to figure out how to to, to um, ensure that even something that's general, that's more competent than we are, will still be tethered to our interests in a way that, like, it'll, like it'll have a fundamental reward function, which, 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 governs everything else that makes it always want to adhere to the next thing we want, right? Like it's, it's, it's overarching goal is to more perfectly approximate what human beings want, right? If that's, that remains to be, it remains to be seen whether that's possible, you know, and that's, that's the, the scary part. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the reason I ask this next question is that I, I think maybe a month ago, I saw some TikTok video of the Eiffel Tower on fire. It was like a slideshow on TikTok, uh -huh. and it was 
Eiffel Tower up in flames, and the caption was like, heartbroken, I never got to see the Eiffel Tower in person. Right. And that's problematic for many reasons. First of all, Eiffel Tower is made of metal. Right. So I don't think, it, I don't even, I don't think <laughs> it's scientifically possible for it to catch on fire in that way. Um, and oh, this was obviously AI-generated pictures, and millions of likes, hundreds of thousands of comments saying, oh my god, no, this can't be happening. And so... <laughs> And I was wondering, to what extent, this is, the, uh, this is a prime example of this phenom- AI phenomenon, but to what extent, like, in the near future, in particular on the internet, will AI distort the truth and what people take as fact? Well, that's re- that really is the near-term concern, which is already here. I mean, we're, we're fully there. Yeah, I think that the deep fake problem is, I mean, it's already started. I, th- I think we're, we're still in the zone where we can figure it out. But, uh, you know, f- how much longer that's going to last, I mean, really, it could be gone in, in a week or a month or certainly a year, I think, is, is the, the longest we can hope to live in a world where compelling video is, is um, hard to make, you know, that's completely fake, right? Where you have the face, you have the voice, you have the, you have the thing that was never said by anybody, but it looks, it looks just like Vlad- Vladimir Putin declaring war on the United States or whatever it is, right? Um, it's, uh, and there's, and it, it's possible that there will be an, you know, it's possible that AI will allow us to detect deep fakes, but it's also possible that there will be this asymmetry where we'll always be playing catch up to the best deep fakes and we won't know, well, we will never quite know if we've caught it. And the, I, I that's a very scary world to live in, right? I mean, that's, and that, that's, that's, that's here, right? That's, and it has no relationship to the, the first part of this, this conversation, which is on this topic, which is AGI getting away from us, right? This is, this is just narrow AI, human governed, but put to a purpose that is totally deranging of our politics and, you know, other public conversations. And yeah, I really, I really do worry about it. I think we will, um, we might just have to declare like intellectual bankruptcy with respect to the internet at some point. I mean, it's not that we we, we can ever get off the internet, but at a certain point, I mean, I, I, tr- the truth is I've already done this to some degree by getting off of social media. I just decided, you know, I mean, it's not that I never look at it. I mean, if there's breaking news, I, I, I look at X to see you know, some commentary on it, but I'm very skeptical of what I'm seeing and, I, 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 I have an expectation uh, that I'm going to be encountering f- just purely fake news and propaganda and uh, delusion. I mean, it's, it's, it's become a kind of hallucination machine. And I, cause I, and I see people who don't have that expectation go down the rabbit hole on various topics and, you know, spend months and years there where they're convinced that, you know, I mean, this, the, the truth is, this is even bef- this was true even before the internet, but it's just gotten much worse. But it was like, you know, the nine eleven truth conspiracy theorists that happened that you know they kicked off after two thousand one. That was before most of us were spending any significant amount of time online. It was certainly before social media, and um, it was. Uh, I mean, it was it was actually that's it's not true. That wasn't that was fully internet enabled. It was just pre social media. Um, but we were all spending a, a ton of time online. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we might have to, um, 
we might be defaulting at some point to, to gatekeepers who we can trust and really treating most of incoming information, certainly the kind of stuff you'd see on TikTok or Instagram or X, as just bogus until proven otherwise, you know. I mean, how do, how do you guys deal with it? How do you think about your information? I mean, I notice it particularly on Twitter. I like, I, I, I mean, I'm on Twitter often. I feel like it's, it's never. You, I, that's, I have that mindset where it's not true unless I find out that it's true. Yeah. I don't think I have that mindset on other social media apps, like TikTok's mostly for jokes, and Instagram's not really like, it's, that's like sports news, like, like with your friends. But Twitter, I have that mindset where if, if I know for certain that unless I know for certain that it's true, I don't really believe it because everything on there is mm. AI. Are, are most AI. of the, the people you you know your age on Twitter, or is it, I picture that being more of an I mean old, older person. Yeah, I've yeah. never been on Twitter. Yeah, I've no. never had like a Twitter account. Yeah. Um, I don't know many people that do. I recently, a while ago, I deleted TikTok mm. just because it was too much of a distraction, honestly. Right. Um, and then I recently did deleted Instagram. Really? Too. Yeah. Look at you. Look when at me. Look, when you say you, so you, they're no longer on your phone, but you look at them on a computer, or you just, mm-hmm. you just don't. They're, I just don't have them anymore. Oh, I'm not that strong. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. That's, that's got to be. Uh, and I've a strong experience. <laughs> I've noticed that I read a lot of more articles now, yeah, yeah. rather than just seeing a headline on Instagram. Yeah. Even though you know I. I've always, you know, read, made sure I got the correct news, but there's a lot of stuff on Instagram where it's just you see five to ten words of a headline, and you're like, oh, oh shit, like, right? This, yeah, part I mean, of my French. A lot of people don't read past the headlines. And yeah, the headlines yeah. really do their work. I mean, they're like a totally misleading headline. That's what they're supposed to just do. Just get spread, yeah. mm-hmm. and people, you know, they're dunking on it, they're amplifying it, they're yeah. being moved by it. And it, it's not just teenagers. I mean, it's, yeah. Elon Musk everyone. has been completely deranged Yeah, Elon Musk is. engagement with Twitter. I, I noticed that particular, about I think about a month ago as well, when that controversy in Brooklyn with the, the Hasidic Jews, oh, how the, they, the, they, there was some, in the tunnel they were digging right? a tunnel underground. Oh, I think I missed this one. Oh, yeah, yeah, this was, this yeah. was a bit, this was, this I, I thought this was pretty bad. There was yeah. a, I think it was for a reasonable, something reasonable, like, the two Hasidic, Jew, Hasidic houses were like had a rivalry, and they were trying to get more land. So one of them like dug underground to get more land for themselves. I'm not sure if that's exactly the reason. That's one of the th- explanations I heard. But I think conspiracy theorists and anti-Semites on the internet took this headline: "Jews digging tunnels underground." Right. And yeah. just now went it goes to the Hamas tunnel. Exactly. Just yeah. went crazy with it, and there was like a Jewish children's museum nearby they're like oh they're kidnapping children from it's like it went completely off the rails Amazing. that was yeah that was Twitter so that I noticed that was a huge issue yeah completely taken out of context just one headline and then everyone ran with it yeah yeah so this is a this is the problem of our time I think in addition to you know a few wars we might worry about um the the inability to have a fact-based conversation about what's actually happening in the world and to have our politics conform to that, that is, um, 
that's what I most worry about for for America in particular. America, we're so lucky here to be insulated from so much of the world's chaos. I mean, it really, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to exaggerate the, the advantage we have with respect to just having these two big oceans on on either side and, you know, Mexico to our, to our south and, and Canada to our north. It's just, we're, we're in a, you know, the problems at, at, at the border notwithstanding, we're in a unique circumstance and we, we can be, we can kind of go to sleep on, mm-hmm. on the world's problems because of that. But our inability to, to talk to one another across the political spectrum now yeah. is, is really Getting pretty bad. It's, it's worth worrying about and trying to fix. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to shift the topic of conversation to politics here. Our oh, last. That's where we are now, okay. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the 2024 presidential election? And I have a very direct question here. Does Trump pose a direct threat to democracy? Yeah, well... I do think, and this falls directly from what we were just talking about, I think um, the level of misinformation and partisan dishonesty and delusion that, that we're seeing now in our politics has been, what one, it, it, it's happening on both sides, but Trump is immensely culpable for mm-hmm. it. I mean, it. It has largely been brought to us as a result of what Trump has done to the Republican Party. and. The fact that he was able to do that and he was able to turn it into a a totally unprincipled personality cult, I think is um, that's what's worth reflecting on. I mean, obviously he 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 did it, uh, but he's not responsible for the reasons why he was able to do it, right? I mean, there, there was yeah. some there was an environment of um, tribal craziness and an appetite for conspiracy thinking and. Um, uh, confirmation bias, and that—that's it, just—it's—it's it's worth figuring out what happened there and, and trying to figure out how to remedy it. But until Trump is is um, off the scene, I don't see the Republicans becoming more sane. I mean, I just—you yeah. know—yeah, so, well, sure. I do think Trump himself is a threat to our institutions and our democracy, just because he's so malignantly selfish and. Um, Unconcerned about the, the harm he causes to to our society and to any other society. I mean, we, he's a former president who just told our NATO allies that he would encourage uh, Russia to attack them if they haven't, you know, spent enough on on their own defense. Sure. Right? I mean, it's just it's insane on so many levels. Uh, and what's amazing is that the the response from the, the right from Republicans and or, and even from the people in the middle is just to not take him seriously, right? Like, like it's just, we're, we're, we're supposed to, to the, the, import, the significance of, of speech on the part of a president has been so eroded because we had this lunatic in the White House who's basically a game show host con man uh, who's so devalued the office and everyone's expectation for how the government should function, and yeah. certainly the executive branch, that you know half of our society is just inclined to goof on anything he says, even if he's saying, even if he's declaring nuclear war. It's just we're supposed to not take that seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really a um, it's 
it's very hard to understand what, what happened there. And uh, one can only hope that at a certain point we're going to have more normal candidates and um, that Trump is going to prove to be kind of a, a one-off phenomenon. I mean, he's, he really is unique in so many ways. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, be, we'll be back to something like grown-up politics. And, and not to say that that was ever ideal, but it was just, it, it was so much better than what we have yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't have this written down, but are you aware of and or do you like Dean Phillips as a Democrat? <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, I, I don't know much about him. I've heard him interviewed, I think, twice. He seems quite smart. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I don't I think his obviously his campaign is pretty quixotic and unlikely to to result in him yeah. being president, but I guess you never know. Uh, but, but you listen to him talk, and your first and second and third response is, why the hell are we running a, an octogenarian candidate who, you know, for whom every sentence is a tightrope walk where you're, you're just sitting there in terror that he's going to fall off yeah. <laughs> and break his neck? You know, it's, it's just, it would be such a relief to have yeah. a younger well-intentioned, knowledgeable person yeah. of, of, of any political persuasion. I mean, literally, I would, re- I would vote for a, a normal Republican if he just, yeah. just was not a QAnon dosed madman. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it's very strange that this is the situation we're in. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed, as a member of the, of the uh, grown-up generation, I'm embarrassed to be sitting in the presence of two young men uh, and to say that I have no idea how we, we got our uh, politics is this dysfunctional. Yeah. All right. Uh, accept my apology on behalf of all Gen Xers. We accept. Thank you. All right. Uh, moving on to like foreign policy. Um, you are an outspoken and you are outspoken in your support for Israel. Do you think Israel has done enough to protect civilians in Gaza? Well, that is very hard to answer, because I really don't know operationally what they could have done better. I mean, I'm sure they've done things that, um, in hindsight, look catastrophically stupid. To take the obvious example, they killed their own hostages. They killed Israeli hostages who who were 10 seconds away from being rescued. They shot them, right? Now, obviously, that was not intended, you know. So if they're going to make a mistake like that, I'm sure they've made other catastrophic mistakes. But it should be clear that their goal is not to kill Palestinian non-combatants. If they wanted to do that, they mm-hmm. could kill everyone next week. Yeah. Um, whereas Hamas's goal really was and is to kill as, as many Jews as they, as they can, yeah. a non-combatant or otherwise. And that's a, that is such a stark moral difference that um, everything has to be viewed through that lens. I mean, it's just, it's to ask whether Israel's uh, war is just, is to, you just, ha- you just have to ask what, what, what Hamas would do if it had more power, you mm-hmm. know, if it was able to come back. Yeah, it could be totally. resurgent. I mean, its um, charter is pretty clear. So it's like, yeah, and, it's, and they've, they've said they would perpetrate October 7th again and again and again. And again, people are, are confused by the, the body count 
statistics as though you know if you know if Israel killed more than 1,200 Palestinians, their response was disproportional. Mm -hmm. That's just not the way to think about it. I mean, you know, Israel would kill no Palestinian non-combatants if they could. Right? What's happened is yeah. Hamas ha has decided to use its entire civilian population as human shields. Yeah. They spent 17 years building tunnels under Gaza, under hospitals, under mosques, under schools. They fire rockets from densely populated civilian areas into, into cities trying to kill Israeli civilians, which is a war crime. Um, and the only way to respond to this terrorism is to go after Hamas, and, the, and they, they've ensured that to go after Hamas is, is synonymous with killing non-combatants, because they're literally using their own children as human shields. Now, I, again, to, to see the moral asymmetry here, you, you just have to reflect on what would happen if Israel decided to use its own civilians as human shields against Hamas. I mean, just take a moment to consider the absurdity of that. I mean, it would be this just grotesque Monty Python skit where everyone dies, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because Hamas is trying, Hamas would not be deterred for a second by the use of human shields. If you can imagine the Israelis using their own women and children as human shields, that's already unthinkable, given the way they, yeah. they feel, they, the value they place on human life. But even if they were that desperate and insane, the idea, no one for a moment thinks that Hamas would be deterred by that because they literally went into Israel for the purpose of killing women yeah. and children. Um, so it's just, it's a completely, it's a, it's a clash between completely different cultures with completely different moral norms. Yeah. Right? And it, sure. granted, it could be equalized. Yes, you, you could get, you could find Israelis who are capable of behaving just as badly as Hamas mm -hmm. and for similar reasons. And those people would be total religious fanatics willing to die for their almost certainly fictional beliefs. And then they would be as contemptible as Hamas is, right? I mean, so, so there's no, I have no bias for Judaism or against Islam here. It's just I'm acknowledging the, the very stark differences in intention on the two sides and, mm -hmm. and the level of support they have. And it's not that every Palestinian supports Hamas, but you know, insofar as we have any kind of poll results that we can, can accept from the Palestinian territories, Hamas has a lot of support, and the, their, what they did on October 7th has even more support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you have to layer on top of that the understanding that the, the, air, the culture is so riven by conspiracy thinking that you know, we, can, we can reasonably wonder how many people think any non-combatants were killed on October 7th. Right? I mean, they, they, you know, they're, they're, it's, very, it's just a very strange landscape of public opinion to, to try to understand because like in the aftermath of, of September 11th, 2001, we had poll results from the Muslim world I and mean, dozens of countries where you, 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 you see high levels of, of agreement on two totally contradictory points. You find people who thought it was totally justified and were, were, it was a kind of jihadist triumph and they loved al-Qaeda for having brought down the Twin Towers and struck a blow against the great Satan of America. 
And simultaneously, you would hear people saying that the Jews did it, that Mossad did it, and 4,000 Jews didn't show up to work that day, and it's all a conspiracy. And you, you have high levels of support for the, these two totally contradictory notions. And there's something similar happening now where you know there, there's a celebration of what Hamas did, and there's also the claim that nobody was raped, no, no combatants yeah. were killed. Um, prove it, right? So yeah. it's... Um, it's a strange thing to do. Mm -hmm. And as that as October seventh applies to America, do you think the the amount of votes Biden loses due to Palestinian supporting like progressives who maybe would have voted for him in twenty twenty, will that be significant? Because I see there are huge protests. I see it often, even locally. I think that's going to affect the general election. I. I'm less worried about that. I just don't think that, I think, well, who, who else are they going to vote for, right? I mean, do, uh, you're you're going to say these people will be happy then to have Trump as president? I mean, Trump is worse for, for these people on by almost every measure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he's even worse. As much as he's an isolationist and unpredictable with respect to what he's going to say about any foreign engagement, he's been in lockstep support with Israel to a degree that, that no, even Biden ha hasn't been. Um, I mean, he's, 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 he's said some crazy things in the aftermath of October 7th, too, so I, I would never take for granted that we, we understand what Trump would do, but I, he's just, he's truly bad from the progressive point of view, so it's, it's hard to see progressives um, doing anything that would, would make a Trump presidency more likely, but I don't know, I guess they could be confused enough to decide to vote for Cornell West, Cornell, or, yeah. you know, just, and then that would obviously be bad, yeah. Or RFK Jr. or something, I mean, things. Dean Phillips? Dean well, Dean Phillips is not going to run in the general, I don't think he's going to run in the general election. Right, so he's doing, yeah, if, if he he's were doing the honorable thing. That would be, yeah. Yeah. That would be a little That'd scary, be. but, um, Rip, yeah, I mean, I'm still, like many people, I'm still aghast at the fact that Biden is the candidate, and I'm hoping that... You know, we're going to see a headline Michelle Obama. that it's going to be somebody else some, by some That'd be amazing. magic. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, it, it does seem like a slow motion car crash at the moment. <laughs> All right, so on that lighthearted note, we're going to get into <laughs> you guys, the... You guys, you, need to, you guys need some Prozac? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get into the uh, lightning round. This is which, our fun section. Fun right. section. First question. Okay. Favorite sports team or teams? Oh, this is, I'm bound to disappoint you, uh, <laughs> you diehard sports fans here, because I really do not follow sports. Yeah, sports. I predicted this. Every four years, I get super into the World, World Cup. Cup is World Cup is amazing. I just go wall to wall on the World Cup. And, then I'm, and now the U.S. is good. Yeah. So it's fun to watch, too. Yeah, so I'm, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to go when, when it's here. It's going to be here next time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to go. I mean, that'd be fun. But, um, Olympics, too. So I just I go crazy for two weeks and then I'm so relieved not to have my bandwidth back mm -hmm. in my life where I'm not a sports nut. Uh, so I, I really go to sleep on it. So I can't say I have a team or even a sport. I mean I watch MMA, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. I, sometimes. But um, John Jones, I know that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's about it. <laughs> but I don't. Yeah. So I'm just gonna. Yeah. I'm just gonna come up empty on this one. I feel sometimes you're the same way. But in playing fantasy football. After the season the season huh. ends, there's a relief that that brings me so much anxiety. Right, right, right. It's a relief that it's over, even if you lose. Um, what is your favorite restaurant? 
Favorite restaurant? Can be local, doesn't have to be. Well, that is hard. Um, yeah, well, there's a, uh, there are a few death row meals that I would, uh, that I have in mind. Um, one, one's a very simple one in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's been a while since I've been there and had it, but there's a restaurant, uh, Tomasita's, that has just the, the best green chili and enchiladas I've ever had, and that's a fantastic Love meal. So I, would, I would recommend that. It's hard to beat green chili enchiladas with uh, hatch green chili from New Mexico. Yeah, that's brief. Sounds good. Let's put those hermanos. Favorite vacation spot? Um, really depends on the type of vacation. I mean, there are extreme differences in vacations. There are the vacations where you just sit on a beach and do absolutely nothing, and the vacation that where you're you're seeing, you're walking the streets of some yeah. great city. Cool. What about fa- yeah. favorite city in the world? How about that? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I like that one. I love... I lo- actually, I love London. I love Rome. I love New York. I just I just went to Rome for the first time very briefly, and I hadn't been in, in like 20 years, and was just blown away by how cool Rome is. So oh, that's I, pretty I, sick. I, I would want to go back to Rome in short order. I'd have to put, I'd have to put London and Rome and New York. Mm-hmm. London. All right, and then lastly, how do you grow a podcast? What note should we take? How do you grow a podcast? Mm-hmm. That is, um, well, what's one, one tip you have? Because, you know, one I, I tip, have a yeah. very unconventional business model for my podcast. I'm one of the few people who has paywalled his podcast. Right? Some, some people are kind of copying me now, but mm-hmm. I was, um, I mean, they're really, so traditionally there are two ways to have a podcast that, that becomes a real business. Either mm-hmm. you can run ads mm-hmm. or you can do a, um, a kind of a support model through Patreon or yeah. Some other platform, and, and so the podcast is free. It's out there, and people can support it if they want to. And I was, I, I did the latter for a couple of years, and then I decided to actually make it, put a paywall on it. So now I release like half episodes, and people can always get it for free if they if they can't afford it. They just send an email, and and um, I give them a free subscription. But and a lot of people do that. But it's a um, it's unlike the Patreon model, whereas you, if, you, if you're not subscribed officially, you're you're only getting half uh, half episodes. So on Spotify, you only release half the episode. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and on YouTube mm. too. And so I'm really not part of the world where you're trying to get as broad as possible because you're you're selling ads against your content, and it's it's all about clicks and and. You know, putting lots of clips out there that's you know, that's driving traffic back to the podcast. Like I mm-hmm. have that. That's the, the 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 normal way to build a podcast yeah. is to do a lot of that. You know, um, and a lot of people are, are doing that with video now. And and video is phone call. You start posting Instagram reels. Yeah. What? We just start posting Instagram reels. You should. Yeah, so like video, Instagram, and TikTok, and all, all yeah. that's servicing the podcast, you know, with clips and stuff like that. Joe, Joe Rogan is the ultimate yeah. example of this, and Andrew Huberman, who you might listen to, is another great example of somebody who's he's got a podcast. You know, in, in both cases, it was Joe moved to Spotify, but originally it was it was mostly a YouTube-based podcast, and um, it was video from the beginning. Although for the longest time, even when his videos 
uh, were seen by millions, mostly it was it was audio was still like nine out of ten people were still just listening to audio. And yeah. A lot of people even just listen to the audio on YouTube, and then they just turn they open the browser window and they they, they start the video, but they're still just listening to audio. Um, but the growth is really like lots of clips and lots of um, you know pointing pointing everything back to your your YouTube presence or your Spotify presence or your your um, your audio podcast wherever you tend to consolidate it. So I don't tend to play that game very much. Um, I mean, I would say that having people on who have big social media <coughs> presences, of which I which I, yeah, I used to be such a person, and now I'm not. So you're, I'm not the, the ideal guest for this. But having people on who can promote their interview with you uh -huh. would be a natural step. Again, that's not something I, I really did because when I, when I launched my podcast, I you know I had enough of a platform as a writer yeah. that I, I, I wasn't launching it into into the void. I, I had an audience, an mm -hmm. email list. Um, an email list is is a good thing to have yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. just build. Um, that's because that's something you really you do control in a way that mm -hmm. you don't control everything else. Um, but I think, yeah, as far as leverage, having guests that have more of a profile than you who can then yeah. make noise about their episode. Yeah. And for your, for your demographic, I think probably having young, you know, if you can get younger famous guests who are of interest to your demographic, you know, you've got That's a good idea. No idea, but... Timothy Chalamet, right? Yeah, let's go get Tim. Let's right. go get Jacob Elordi. Yeah, you get somebody like <laughs> that, and the, you know, then they talk about politics with Jacob Elordi. Yeah, yeah. They, he's probably got some good takes. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that would be the, the magic. All right. All right, that concludes the interview for season two episode. The six. longest interview ever. Nice. I'm, <laughs> I'm long with it. So Thank you, Mr. Harris. Oh wait, I wanted to mention oh. for context on what we're talking about with Ben Affleck. If you want context on that, look up Sam Harris. For Ben Affleck on YouTube. Now I'll answer your question. Real time, yeah. Real time. Oh yeah. Um, we're confused as yeah. to what we were talking about. All right. That concludes we'll the interview. We'll see you at the end.